Chapter 8, Part 2 of A Theory of Monads, Outlines of the Philosophy of the Principle of Relativity. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. A Theory of Monads, Outlines of the Philosophy of the Principle of Relativity by Herbert Wilden Carr. Chapter 8, Part 2 The Diversity in Unity of Body and Mind. The first of these facts is that which psychologists term repression there are certain instinctive tendencies to actions which we habitually repress and this repression is specific and constitutes nature it is automatic and unconscious for example the whole mental and moral development of human nature that is to say the particular and definite form it has assumed in civilization is dependent on the control of the reproductive instinct this is a psychical not physical control for it is the expression of the instinct not the instinct itself which is repressed repression is affected by the holding back and suppressing of the wish or imaginative form in which conation asserts itself so that it is kept from emergence into consciousness there is a repression exercised by consciousness itself this is very common experience and of everyday occurrence but there is a repression of which we are altogether unconscious and this is proved by abnormal psychology and also confirmed by many delicate experiments on normal subjects the second fact which seems to be established is that there are planes of unconsciousness if we take as the plane of consciousness not merely what at any moment is within the central zone of attention but what is within call of the mind in memory then there is below this a whole range of definite psychical content which cannot of itself reach consciousness and which is only revealed under special circumstances normal or abnormal we may for example under hypnotic conditions bring back memories or relive conations which in ordinary conditions are unrecoverable there is evidence of deeper and deeper planes according to the well-known theory of dream interpretation of sigmund freud it is from deep and ordinarily inaccessible regions of our mind that the substantial material of the dream life comes however that may be we may regard it i think as established that whole regions of psychical matter lie beneath the manifest mental activity of attentive consciousness the third fact is that this unconscious mind is not inert but active not dead but living its constituents like the cells of the living body have their own individual life in normal healthy life the deeper strata are inhibited and controlled the inhibiting and controlling power is exercised by the mind and the character and variety of the inhibition constitute the individuality and personality of the mind personality may however become disordered deranged or to borrow the analogous term in the pathology of the organism diseased then the repressed and inhibited constituents break away from the control and run riot and give rise to the familiar symptoms of hysteria or it may be to the more serious symptoms of dissociation or to final and irreparable ruin in dementia we are entitled to say of these facts apart from anything in regard to them which is hypothetical or mere theory that they point to the existence of mental structure memory imagination desire conation tendency wish are psychical matter and they are organized to form an acting unity and this unity is the personal mind the constituents of it are of a different order of reality to that of the protoplastic movements cell physiology metabolism muscular contractibility glandular secretion nervous coordination and the like which constitute the living body is it not possible however it may yet be urged that the mind is identical with and a development of the principle of life whatever be the origin of life and whatever the nature of the principle which has determined the direction of the energy of the changes of carbon compounds and evolved specialized vegetable and animal forms is there not it may be asked an uninterrupted progress in this direction until we reach the rational soul 
the reply i offer to this so far as my present purpose is concerned is that whether or not the problem of life be ultimately one and identical with the problem of mind the actual fact before us is the problem of two distinct orders an order of living body and an order of thinking mind the interaction of mind and body is not the problem what life itself is but in what way a mind being an organization of spiritual experience can act in and through a living body constituted of material elements and mechanical movements every man whose mind is normal recognizes as soon as he understands the proposition that two straight lines cannot enclose a space and every man whose body is normal maintains from birth to death a blood temperature of thirty seven degrees celsius the two facts belong to different orders and it is inconceivable that the two facts can interact in such a way that one might be the cause or the effect of the other yet the two orders do in some way enter into one system for both are essential to one personality let us now consider the nature of the body the body is what the mind is not a sensible object it is one among the objects or things which constitute the sensible world it is presented by means of sensations and is in spatial and temporal relations with the other objects of the sensible world the term sensible implies a relation to mind for object sensed implies subject sensing there is no escape from this relation on the other hand there would be no advantage in escape were escape possible for the whole problem of knowledge and existence is the problem of presenting reality to the mind in a form which is self-consistent the relation of object to subject expressed in the words sensible object the relation of object to subject in knowing of every kind and order is not however the relation between the body and the mind which i am now seeking to make explicit because in this meaning the mind as well as the body is an object to a subject the body is a sensible object to a sensing subject the mind is an intelligible object to a thinking that is an imagining and reflecting subject the body like other objects in the sensible world is spatial it excludes other objects it is juxtaposed with them it is changeable for it occupies different positions at different moments it is changing for it alters internally continuously and according to a principle or law it is temporal for its state at any moment is determined by its state at the previous moment as an object it can be classified according to any order or arrangement to which physical objects conform to each individual however his body is the privileged object it is the constant center of all objects and the changes in all other objects are primarily for him changes in the relation of other objects to the body but it is also privileged in a still more special sense it is the means and the only means by which all objects itself included are known and the only means by which desires and wishes are expressed it is also a privileged object in the sense that it alone among all objects is known not only by sensations but also by affections or feelings we know our body not only in the way we know all sensible objects by the sensations we have of it but also in the feelings by which the sensations of itself and of other objects are accompanied so it is that some knowledge of our own body appears to be a necessary accompaniment of any knowledge of any sensible object for example when by touch i am made aware of an external object i am also at the same time aware of my own body as the surface touched and this even if the object touching is also part of my own body nevertheless although the body as an object has these privileges over other objects we find no difficulty in abstracting from them and considering the body purely as belonging to the general class of external material objects indeed it is only by doing so that we have come to know anything of importance about the body its special privileges give us no insight into its nature and function we know absolutely nothing of the internal structure 
and of the physiological processes of the body by reason of the fact that the mind dwells within it and is dependent upon it for all it knows and does in fact our individual mind notwithstanding its specially privileged position in regard to one object is not thereby endowed with special knowledge of the nature of that object nor equipped with special means of becoming acquainted with its living processes knowledge of the physiological process cannot be gained by introspection but only by external observation it is gained by means of sensations perceptions and judgments not by feelings the living body is a cycle of physiological processes performed by means of mutually adapted structures automatically coordinated and controlled the great majority of these processes are involuntary and unconscious in the absolute degree and in those processes are parts of processes in which there is consciousness and volition of the consciousness and volition seem independent of the efficacy of the actual process if the consciousness take the form of sentience pain or pleasure it appears merely as an accompaniment of the process not as an essential constituent of it if it take the form of reflective consciousness or awareness it then appears though accompanying the process to be altogether detached from it we can and we do conceive the living body as complete in itself without the accompaniment of consciousness either in the form of simple sentience or in the form of apperception and yet this accompaniment of consciousness whether it be simple sentience or cognition always seems to fulfil some manifest biological purpose also unconsciousness in those neural processes from which consciousness is absent is not merely negative its absence fulfils a biological purpose unconsciousness may be simply an absence or it may be positively acquired the automatism of habitual action in either case we may find its ground in a biological utility yet although the physiological processes of the living body seem independent of the particular form of consciousness or unconsciousness which may accompany them this conscious accompaniment is conditioned by special structures and special processes in the living body part of our organization has for sole function sentience and responsive volitional action such structures are the sense organs which consist of specialized nerve endings disposed in varying groups over the periphery enabling a minute discrimination of external physical stimuli to be experienced the special nerve endings beneath the skin or in its deeper layers which give rise when stimulated to pain sensations special nerve endings sensitive to muscular glandular or vascular fatigue which give rise to vague feelings of general comfort or discomfort the richly innervated organs of the special senses the retina the organ of corti the semicircular canals the organs of taste and smell which enable us to discriminate definite ranges or distinct classes of physical stimuli then there is the great central organ itself the brain and spinal cord to which every single sentient end organ communicates directly its particular fibre and whence special fibres descend with the volitional impulses to every muscle under volitional control there is an important character of the structure and function of the neurons which recent researches have disclosed this is the individuality or rather the specificity of each constituent cell with its fibres the older theory of specific nervous energy merely affirmed the general specificity of groups of sensory and motor neurons particularly those associated with the special senses it now seems probable that this specificity belongs to every constituent unit of a group and not merely to the group as distinguished from other groups all action mediated by neurons takes place on the all-or-nothing principle and the function of one neuron cannot be performed by any other at least it seems to me that all the direct experiments such particularly as the well-known experience of dr head on the innervation of his own forearm tend to confirm this generalization the living principle whatever it is and however we name it entelechy elan vital life-force 
manifests itself in the coordination of multifarious specific processes of constituent cells. This function of coordination is not exercised by any specific structure. At any rate, no such structure is known, and there is no reason to suppose it exists undiscovered. The function is exercised indifferently, whether the constituent elements may be many or few, and the number of cell constituents varies enormously between individuals of different species of the same generic type. The mechanism by which coordination is effected can be located in the cerebral cortex, the function of which may be likened to that of a switchboard in a telephonic exchange. The ultimate nature of the living body seems, therefore, to be the coordination on an enduring principle of an immense numerical aggregate of independent specific units. Let us now consider the heterogeneity of these two natures. When I speak of the heterogeneity of mind and body, and point to the absolute disparity between mental and physical, including physiological, process, I do not mean that we can form class concepts of minds and of bodies as unrelated realities. It is easy to see in the case of the mind that the possibility of presenting it as an image or as a concept depends on its relation to the body. We can only define what anything is by what it does. What does nothing is nothing. And whatever the mind does, it does by means of the body. We may abstract the mind from its relation to any particular body, but we cannot give expression to the thought of a mind without imagining for it some embodiment. This has been the favorite criticism of animistic theories, ancient and modern. It is impossible, even in thought, to present the idea of pure, unembodied spirit. The converse is also true, insofar as the concept of one's own living body is concerned. But it is not so immediately obvious, and would at least require the support of argument to bring conviction. It is really impossible for me to think that my body, without my mind, is still my body. I may place myself in thought as a spectator at my own cremation, but only by the artifice of an imagined embodiment which enables me to present my body to my mind as no longer my body. Or again, consider a case like the pathetic nature which Nietzsche's sister has given of the last years of her brother, truly a picture of living death. There is the living body, surviving the dead mind. In presenting that living body to our mind as still Nietzsche's body, we are, in fact, employing the artifice of a new impersonation. We must place Nietzsche's mind within his body in imagination in order to conceive its absence in fact. The problem of heterogeneity is not the problem whether a dissociation of mind and body is or is not conceivable. If, then, mind and body are heterogeneous, and yet neither existentially nor conceptually separate, does the heterogeneity consist in the double aspect which psychophysical action assumes? Is mind the aspect of that action, when regarded as purpose, body its aspect when regarded as mechanism? The specific character of mental process is the representation in idea of the end to be attained. The specific character of physical process is the determination of counteracting forces in a resultant. Every action or process, whether we class it as material or vital, as conscious or unconscious, presents to the observer this double aspect. The resultant can be viewed either as determined by final cause or by an efficient cause. The resultant is one and the same, however viewed. A process of crystallization or a process of organic metabolism can be read purposively or mechanically, but it is the same set of facts, whichever way they are viewed, and whatever kind of interpretation the external observer seeks. There is, however, in a system or body in which mind is imminent, the emergence of a phenomenon which is not found in any merely mechanical system of interacting forces. This is conscious or purposive adaptation. It manifests itself as a direction of physical forces, already existing, toward the attainment of an ideal which it presents as an end. In this we have the distinguishing characteristic of mind, 
that which raises it so to speak to a higher plane than that of mere natural fact yet this is not the characteristic which seems to me to constitute the fact of heterogeneity rather i should say it is the heterogeneity of mind and body which is the ground or condition of this characteristic this heterogeneity is based on a certain fact which we directly experience and also may indirectly observe it is that every new experience from the instant of its historical apparition enters into submits to is incorporated within two disparate systems each system has its own kind of order its own specific nature and its own peculiar function the union between the two systems consists in a relation of mutual interdependence but it is the systems which are interdependent it is not a point-to-point -point union nor a point-to-point -point correspondence of the constituent parts of one system with those of the other thought and action though mutually dependent form each a system the one is the psychical organization we term the mind the other the coordination of mechanical contrivances we term the body we cannot call into activity a part of the mind without calling into activity the whole mind we cannot exercise a particular mechanism of the body without affecting the whole disposition of the body when i feel perceive think and will what is it in me that performs these acts of feeling perceiving thinking and willing why do i attribute these acts to my mind and not to my body why do i divide myself into these two parts or attribute to myself this dual nature what is the difficulty in assigning all my psychical acts to the brain and in supposing that my brain thinks many contemporary philosophers are inclined to consider this a possible hypothesis and the new theory of behaviorism seems an attempt to give it philosophical expression i find no inherent difficulty in the notion it does not seem to me absurd nor antecedently impossible nor even antecedently improbable the theory that the brain thinks or that the mind is the brain is not the same as the theory that the brain secretes mind as the liver secretes gall such a concept rests on a false analogy as the ovary secretes the ovum would have been a truer analogy but then as the ovum becomes the embryo the absurdity would have been manifest i see no incongruity in attributing to the brain because it is ultimately resolvable into a constellation of physical atoms a psychical function my reason for rejecting the simple statement that the brain thinks is that it seems to me untrue in fact i can imagine that the brain might think and feel and will but what i cannot imagine is that thoughts and feelings and volitions if they were acts of the brain could form the mind they could in a certain way hang together no doubt and they could have the unity which comes from being owned but could they of themselves form an organic individual system such as the mind is i find it then impossible to believe that as a fact the brain thinks because i find that as a fact the brain is not the mind if there be two things the mind and the body and the brain is part of the body then it seems to me it must be the mind and not the brain which thinks but what is the proof of it it seems to me clear that were it the brain which directly exercises the psychical function then acts of feeling thinking and so forth would be disconnected detached and detachable or combined if they were combined on an altogether different principle from that which i find as a fact i can never detach one psychical fact from other acts or attach a psychical act purely and simply to a physiological process it is always one and indivisible with the whole psychical organization i call mind it belongs to the system of my psychical experience and to present it as belonging to the system of mechanical contrivances which i call my body and to the particular coordinating connections of these which are the part of my body i call my brain is to me a pure incongruity even the simplest most elementary psychical act is the act of a mind its character its tone its subordination to purpose emanate directly from the organization of an individual whole of psychical acts thoughts ideas meanings desires 
wishes, imaginations, feelings, sensations, are not a chaos, a disconnected manifold. They do not float loosely, and they are not indifferent to the principle of their combination. They are owned, not by the brain, but by the personality which they themselves constitute, the mind. Test it in the simplest case of mere sentience. Suppose the stimulation of a pain nerve ending. The pain which follows may seem instantaneous, and may be followed by an automatic muscular response, but it is not a pure reflex, for it is only if I experience pain that it is pain, which means that to be pain, it must be a state of my mind. It must modify my whole personality. If my mind exclude it, it is absolutely ineffectual, practically and actually non-existent, even though the stimulation remain in the form of physical injury, and the neural course be unimpeded. There is no way of detaching the pain as a psychical element from the mind, and attaching it and confining it to a particular neural process. And it is the whole mind, not a detached psychical factor of it, which intervenes to bring about the new bodily disposition. We find another and yet more striking instance of the heterogeneity of mind and body in the general phenomenon of the animal mind. The mental equipment of different animal species seems always proportioned to the conditions of the animal's life, and never and in no respect proportionate to neural matter or to the complexity and quantity of specific contrivances. There are large mammals which possess at least 15,000 times as many neurons as the smallest mammals. Does anyone, therefore, credit them with 15,000 times the sentient or intellectual capacity? But if the brain thinks, why not? Leaving aside the problem of magnitude, when we compare one animal with another, we are struck with the remarkable difference between one species and another in the extent to which mind serves it in its activity. A rat, for example, shows more cunning than a rabbit, or a sheep, or a horse, yet it is not better equipped neurologically for its special activities than they are for theirs. It is clearly a case in which intelligence has been developed because it serves the species in the particular routine of life to which it is adapted. A striking illustration was afforded a few years ago at the zoological gardens in the case of a polar bear, a creature which, judging by its structure and position in the animal scale, might be expected to exhibit a high degree of common intelligence. When placed in new quarters on the map and terraces, it fell over the parapet into the surrounding foss. Obvious and perfectly simple means of return were offered it, but instead of availing itself of them, it displayed for several days an amazing amount of what appeared as sheer stupidity. The explanation zoologists offered was that its mental equipment was adequate to the conditions of its life, the routine of which, in its native seas, where no natural enemies are laying snares for it, seldom presents a complex situation, or one that calls for the exercise of cunning. The acquirement of skill affords another illustration of what I mean by the heterogeneity of mind and body. The skill of the musician, the mechanic, the professional scientific practitioner, is acquired by an activity orientated in the inverse direction to that which we associate with the growing, widening, and developing mind. It even depends for success on a certain inhibition of pure mentality. Skill may almost be defined as the power of performing complicated actions without thinking. Reflective or discursive thought, which is the essence of mind, interrupts the work of skill, yet the acquirement of skill is not independent of, nor indifferent to, the brain. Not only does it involve a development of neural process, but almost certainly a development of the higher cerebral centers, those which we imagine to be most immediately concerned with rational processes. Skill supposes an enormous work of coordination, and the cerebral hemispheres are the seat of this coordination. Here, therefore, we have a case in which brain development is quite disparate from mind development. On the other hand, the cases are almost proverbial of the want of skill in the ordinary affairs of life displayed by men of vast intellectual attainments. Mental giants sometimes act as children in matters of daily life. 
it may be of course that the intellectual development is due to other and different nervous coordinations or to other kinds of nervous contrivance but whether this be so or not it is clear that in the case of skill the brain hypothesis is largely explanatory in the other case it is not the reason is important muscles are involved in the case of skill and muscles are wholly controlled by nerves in the case of mind thoughts ideas and meanings are concerned and their direct relation to nerve is purely hypothetical nerves are the channels or pathway between the mind and the world external to the body but that they cause or control or originate the mind there is no evidence at this point it may seem that the animistic hypothesis offers the easiest solution of our problem it is the most ancient and the most venerable and this of itself may incline one to suspect that it may be true after all may we not schematize the relation of mind and body on the analogy of the charioteer who with the reins in his hands guides and controls the living horses making them subserve and fulfil his purposes may not the relation of the soul to the living body though infinitely more complex be yet ultimately as simple as this should we adopt this view we might then suppose that each sensation was a demand on the attention of the soul a call to it to take account of the situation and direct the response and this the soul might do either by leaving the response to the automatic reactions or by coordinating new ones in any case we should represent the soul as distinct in its nature and function from the living body able perhaps like the charioteer to step down from the chariot and at need to mount another the analogy is tempting and up to a point it agrees with the facts it is therefore very important to indicate clearly the exact point at which it fails and also the completeness of the failure it fails to explain the fact that the mind is psychical experience and not something which has psychical experience the problem of mind and body arises in the fact that psychical experience organizes itself into mind and then stands as an organic or a systematic whole over against the bodily system it seems to me certain that the forces whatever they are which are moulding the body and adapting it to the specific activity of the living creature are the identical forces which are forming the mind and organizing it into the personal unity i say it seems to me certain not because i think the contrary inconceivable but because all the facts when considered without prejudice support this view and because i can think of no reason why i should suppose there are unknown facts which would invalidate such a conclusion moreover there is one fact which seems positively to clinch it every individual has an ancestry and proximately arises from two parents in the fertilized germ potential mind and potential body are indistinguishable together they part from the parental stock and enter on individual existence i find it impossible to believe that the mind is generated by some separate process or arises independently of the force which generates the body i will now state my own theory and i will do so by first of all presenting its metaphysical basis in abstract terms afterwards trying to show how it is exemplified in the common and acknowledged facts of experience the ultimate reality i can best indicate by the term life life is a very general term and more often used as an adjective than as a substantive i mean by life existence as i immediately experience it in living i mean therefore what some philosophers term conscious experience or simply experience it seems to me to be what descartes meant by his i think therefore i am thinking is the ultimate fact behind which even thought cannot get this immediate knowing of life in living is pure intuition that is a form of knowing which is non-intellectual when we reflect on this life and form a notion of it when we ask what it is we find that there are involved in the notion two concepts which are essential to it the concept of activity and the concept of duration 
it may be said that these are but expressions of a more general notion which underlies them the notion of movement or change i prefer to identify change with the general notion of life but i am now considering life as each individual conceives it in reflecting on his experience to the individual life is centralized and determined it is the activity which is confined to a definite present moment and also it is the duration of progressing action there is therefore a dichotomy in the very notion of life it splits into two antithetical notions and these stand over against one another and are mutually exclusive the notion of activity seems to concentrate or focus all reality in one intense but isolable instant and to exclude from the present moment what has been or will be while the notion of duration brings into the present moment both past and future it appears to me that we have in this dichotomy of thought the essential principle which underlies the duality of mind and body the body is the concrete realization of the activity of life the mind the concrete realization of its duration some of the most obstinate problems of philosophy are due to a natural disposition of our intellect which inclines us to dissociate thought and action thinking and doing we regard deeds as alone real in the full sense of actuality thoughts possess a shadowy kind of reality which they derive from deeds consequently the living body which at each present moment is actually doing the action essential to life seems not only the centre of activity but the whole activity and the source from which the mind derives its reality but the living body is necessary for the performance of action the enduring mind is equally necessary for the unity and continuity of the action when we try to form the distinct concept of the living body apart from the concept of the informing mind it is at once evident that our notion is of an unenduring thing that is a perishing and a not perishing thing we conceive it is true a continuity of purely bodily existence we picture the continuity of the body of an individual from birth to death the same body seems to us to go through the most complete changes changes both of matter and form in infancy maturity and decay at any present moment the body is an aggregation of material constituents with a certain arrangement of juxtaposition in space and an order of succession in time ordered succession is implied in physiological process the state at every present moment is determined by the state at the preceding moment but this is not the concept of duration on the contrary it is the concept of the succession of momentary existences lapsing into a non-existence which is absolute the living body concentrates its whole activity in one present existent moment and it perishes with that moment its continuity is a continuity of perishing it does not share its existence between two moments in such a way that part of it exists at one moment part at another its existence at one moment means that it has ceased to exist at every other we cannot form the concept of mind on that model duration is as essential to our concept of mind as non-duration is essential to our concept of body duration means the continued existence of the past and its comprehension within the present non-duration means the continual going out of existence and new creation of the present living action therefore involves for its actualization two systems antithetical in their nature and divergent in their direction each of these systems organizes itself continuously round one and the same individual centre of activity and its organization is the necessary condition of realization in action one secures to living action its duration and gives it its free self-determining character the other secures its efficiency and gives it mechanical necessity inserting it into the universal system of interacting forces such is the nature of the antithetical systems which it seems to me are necessarily formed round every centre of life 
realizing the twofold character of action duration and efficiency can we present the scheme of the genesis of these two systems and will this throw light on the problem of the nature of their interaction living process as i conceive it is a progressive dichotomy throughout the realm of individual experience the fundamental principle of development is a dichotomy of thinking and acting by the term dichotomy i wish to emphasize that the process of experience is single not twofold in its origin living experience is the continual differentiation of what is at first undifferentiated the differentiating is not a mechanical division into parts it is the imposition on the same material of two orders of arrangement each following a different principle but each order the necessary complement of the other i will try to illustrate what i mean by taking first a simple case the simplest case i can imagine then a more complex case i will suppose that a single pain terminal in my body is excited by an adequate stimulus the result is a psychophysical event as simple and unique as an event can be it is physical and it is psychical the pain is psychical and the stimulus is physical a later reflection may separate them but existentially they are inseparable they are not experienced as two events in a causal relation yet this one single experience in its very nature affects two wholly distinct systems the mind and the body in the mind it is undifferentiated pain vaguely localized and referred to something hurting in the body it is the specific functioning of a specific minute structure responding to a specific stimulus this structure is not interchangeable with any other so far as its function is concerned yet it is in coordination with the whole body as a physiological system and now let us consider a more complex and complicated case i will suppose i am watching a violinist performing i have before me quite clearly mental process and bodily action were there only bodily action i might hear sound or noise but not music yet for me there is only one fact and it seems to me also that for the violinist there is only one fact his living action but this one fact necessarily enters his mental order and his bodily order and each is changing at every point of the progressing action each order the mental and bodily is changing however on a totally different principle so that there is not and cannot be a correlation between a constituent part of the one order and a constituent part of the other his living action is not uniting two diverse facts nor holding in a fixed correlation two series of facts it is creating two different orders my theory is then that living action is not the unifying of an original diversity but the dichotomizing of an original unity if this be true it seems to me that the whole problem of interaction as hitherto understood is transformed mind and body arise in the very process of living action and arise not at some moment which we can fix or imagine as the absolute beginning of living action but arise continuously from moment to moment of the progressing development every modification of ever-changing experience is a modification of mind and body each in its individual integrity the antithesis of the two constitutes the essential nature of living action the principle of living action is an organization of ends an organization of means and a continuous adaptation of ends to means and means to ends the organizations realize antithetical principles the one achieves freedom the other necessity the notion of means involves rigid determinism a means which is not the necessary means is not a means the notion of end involves freedom a necessary end is not an end the dichotomy itself is grounded in necessity it is because the principles are antithetical that each must organize itself independently of the other there is no common quality of mind and body and no common measure between them which would render it conceivable 
that mental things and bodily things should enter indifferently into either a mental or a bodily process equally inconceivable is a mind without embodiment and a body without mind to give purposiveness to its coordinated processes it is only as whole and individual and not composed of classes of discrete entities that mind and body are in perfect union in a relation of absolute mutual interdependence the term which seems to me best adapted to express the interaction of the mind and the body is solidarity the old legal meaning of this word exactly fits the notion it was originally a term of roman and civil law to express the character in a contract which in a single matter involved individual obligations on the part of the contractors severally and corresponding rights to the holders the term solidarity means therefore that diverse even divergent activities together bring to pass a single common result to which all the activities contribute without sacrificing their individual integrity the term causality on the other hand as used in physical science apart from any question as to the legitimacy of its employment therein means that in some way something which is distinguished as cause disappears and its exact equivalent reappears in something which is distinguished as effect the interaction of mind and body is not of a causal but of a solidary nature i can now i think make clear my scheme of this interaction let us call living action a then we may say that every a is b c these standing respectively for what pertains to the mind system and to the body system b and c are not in direct relation but only in indirect relation a b is different from a c and the relation between b and c is that both are implied in a thus there is interaction between b and c without causal relation for let us suppose that the initiation of a change is in b the change is a change of a but a is also c and therefore there is a change in c consequent on the change in b it is the nature of the consequence which is all important in my theory a is always changing change being of the essence of activity and the change of a is a change in system b and a change in system c the relation of b and c to one another is mutual adaptation a profound change in b may necessitate very slight adaptation in c may conceivably necessitate no adaptation at all and then the changes in b and c are quite disproportionate it is this that differentiates my view from parallelism the change in the mind is never commensurate with the change in the body and there is no one-to-one -one correspondence which would make it possible for even an infinite intelligence to read the one in the other let me try and apply the formula life i have said is enduring and efficient and i have shown that these characters are antithetical i suppose then life to exist in an undifferentiated unity if i am challenged to justify this supposal by any actual experience i have of course to acknowledge that there is no such experience i am presenting a scheme of the genesis of experience not a temporal history of it there is no experience of life save as already differentiated into body and mind this is not a difficulty peculiar to philosophy it is an inherent difficulty of all scientific explanation how for example can i schematize what light is without the notion of latent energy yet so far as experience is concerned latent energy is non-existent energy i conceive life then as first an undifferentiated unity which to realize itself to become actual to be living action must differentiate itself this differentiation is a dichotomy a separation into two individual systems the order of which is governed by principles which are opposite and contradictory but at the same time the systems are complementary one principle realized in the mind the other in the body 
one forms an enduring agent preserving past and projecting future action and the other an efficient instrument inserted into the whole system of interacting forces within which it is operative freedom is essential to the agent mechanical necessity to the instrument here we must be on our guard lest our metaphors defeat us agent and instrument are metaphors which almost directly suggest the distinction between a machine and its function and we cannot apply this distinction to the relation of mind and body between life and function there exists no distinction the body is not like a motor car which a man leaves in his garage until he has need of it living action progresses with the continuous modification of mind and body the action is neither physical nor psychical nor partly physical partly psychical it is psychophysical no physical influence affects the mind save through the body and no psychical influences passes from the mind save through the body all and every experience modifies both mind and body but the modification is not a mechanical addition to something which but for the addition remains identical with what it was before however subtle and imperceptible the change may be which new experience effects on the mind it is the whole mind which is changed and however slight the demand on the body a new experience makes even though the action called for may appear a mere repetition of countless previous similar actions a change is effected in the whole disposition of the coordinated mechanisms which comprise the body we know that the organs of the body and constituent elements of the organs atrophy with disuse and grow with use a continuity of change in mind and body is a condition of life here i may offer a remark on the bearing of this theory on the question of survival it is not strictly relevant yet to many the predominant interest of the whole problem of the interaction of mind and body is the light it throws on it i see nothing irrational in the notion of a survival of personal experience after death the credibility of it as a matter of fact must depend on ordinary scientific evidence and with this my theory has nothing to do the only question it is concerned with is how far the system i call mind is conceivable when the system i call body is practically destroyed there are two types of religious dogma one is the natural immortality of the soul the other is the resurrection of the body i do not propose to discuss or compare them in regard to their conceivability for with the first my present argument is not concerned i will only point out therefore that so far as the view of the relation of mind and body which i have tried to set forth is concerned some embodiment is essential to every presentation of mind as image of a concrete person or as general idea or concept of an actual individual if then we believe that the departed soul can or does return now and here or that it may or will return hereafter or that it moves to a new sphere and lives in other conditions the pertinent questions in regard to any such belief are those which st paul set himself to answer quote, how are the dead raised up and with what body do they come End quote. a soul without a body would be a non-receptive non-active mind and that is only not a contradiction in terms because there are no terms to contradict mind and body are then in my view two disparate but not separate nor separable systems or orders they are the necessary condition of the realization of life in action they arise and undergo modification continuously in the process of living action they interact continuously by mutual adaptation they are never in direct causal relation in the sense in which that relation holds in an energetical system but they have a common source and cooperate in a common end End of chapter 8